Good to be here with you all. Uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name is Evan Hendricks, one of the elders here uh, at Antioch Church. And my pleasure to be up here this morning uh, to share with you some of what God has placed on my heart. Um, and we'll be in for a ride, because as Ken said last week, uh, it's first time up, first time getting a chance to speak with all of you at once. Uh, and it's something that I certainly don't take lightly. Um, one of my wrestling coaches growing up always said that if you're nervous before a competition, that's a good thing. It means that you care. And so the number one question I've had leading up to this moment is, are you nervous? And the answer is extremely, <laughs> for a number of reasons, um, but mostly because I care. I care about this space and I care about you as a community and I care about us this morning and what we would have to hear from God. Um, so with that, let's, let's pray and just invite his spirit to fill this space. Father, it's good to be here this morning, uh, good to be with your people, good to have the opportunity in the space to come and gather together and worship together and as we just finish singing. Father, this morning we ask that your grace would pour out on us, that we would experience relationship at its deepest and truest and most real level. So Father, we ask that your spirit come and fill this space, that your spirit come and fill my body Fill me up that it might not be my words that are spoken this morning, but yours, that it might be your truths that are heard this morning um, and not my agenda. Father, I ask that you empty our minds of any distractions, uh, be it good or bad, Father, that we would come to this space open-minded, available, and able to be shaped. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So a few weeks ago, Pete came to me and said, hey, would you be willing to, uh, to speak at Antioch? And I said, uh, absolutely, very quickly. And then I went, wait, all of Antioch, not like youth group or children's ministry storytelling, you mean like on stage? And he said, yeah. Um, so then I thought about it and then I said, yeah, I think I would. Um, as an elder, it's a responsibility, I think, to be able to teach. Uh, we see that in scripture. And so... Uh, it's an honor, again, that I don't take lightly to be up here in front of you uh, to share a word. And then also uh, being a part of the pastoral residency for the last uh, better part of the year with uh, Pete and Mike Rivera and then Aaron Fry and Kendra have stepped in as well. Uh, the goal is that we would be able to speak in this kind of setting and that we would be able to share what God has put on our heart and how he is wanting to speak to us as a people. And so something I'm excited to be here uh, and at the same time, like I said, nervous, so Bear with me. Um, one of the things that has been on my heart lately and one of the things that I think we see throughout our culture and especially in the headlines as of late, we can't escape it, right? The political arena is everywhere. And I'm not up here this morning to have any kind of political conversation. Uh, I am not the guy to talk about politics. That's my father-in-law. He's amazing at it. And uh, I always allow him to do most of the talking. I do most of the listening. But one of the things that I found incredibly fascinating, and if I'm perfectly honest with you, has been very enticing, is one of the candidates' mottos. And it's, make America great again. And if I'm honest with myself, and I think if we're honest as a people, there's a certain level of, of all of us that says, yes, that sounds really good. Make this country great again. I'm an American, make me great. There's a piece of us that I think cries out in that moment and says, yes, we want to be made great. So please do that for us, will you? Make us great again. Now again, I'm not here to tell you which way to vote, and 
I certainly don't want to weigh in on that. But I find that phrase very interesting, make America great again, make us great again. And I think it's something that we're all drawn towards at some level. And I don't think it's by chance. Uh, I think this, this thread that runs through us, this desire for greatness or to be great is something that is natural in us in a certain sense. We see it everywhere. We see it not just in politics. We just finished up with the Olympic Games not too long ago, right, Rio? My wife is an incredible fan of the Olympics, and prior to marrying her, I had no idea that you could stay up for 16 days straight and watch everything from curling to badminton to track and field. It was amazing. Um, but the Olympics, it's a competition about figuring out who's the greatest, right? That's what we do. We all, we all sit in front of our televisions, and we sit anxiously awaiting the moment that the gun fires or that the bell dings, and we get to see competition, the best in the world go at it, and at the end of it, we, we place medals on the ones that are the greatest. And we find that incredibly enthralling, intriguing, fascinating. So much so that we stay up late and sacrifice health and well-being to watch other people be great. And we see that in sports, right? College football just kicked off. I spent all day yesterday hanging out with my brother. I'd spent the last two weeks trying to figure out what to say this morning. I said, my brain's full. God, I just need to watch some college football and hang out with my brother. So we did, and I think like most of America and a lot of people around the world, we love watching sports because it's the greatest, right? The greatest athletes, the greatest competitions. And so this isn't something that I think any of us finds strange or weird. We're all drawn to it in a certain sense. And I, I don't even think it's something that we necessarily have to learn. It's, again, kind of within us. And this morning, I want to be a little bit vulnerable with you and allow you to get to know me a little bit. And so I'm going to share with you a story from my childhood. Um, and when I was six years old, stepped into the first grade, and if anybody has been in the first grade, which I'm sure we all have at some point, um, there's this thing that they do, and maybe they don't do it anymore, maybe they do, but it's called show and tell. Anybody familiar? Show and tell? Yeah? Okay. So those of you who might not know, show and tell, it's this simple idea where you bring in an item from your house, from your home, something you really love, something you're really proud of, and you get to bring it to class, and you get to put it up in front of your friends and stand in front of the class and tell everybody, this is my favorite dinosaur or my favorite video game or whatever it is. And you get to show it off to the class and then you get to tell a little bit of a story about why you love this particular item, show and tell. So I'm there for a couple of weeks and I'm watching all my friends bring stuff in and back in the first grade, I was very, very shy. Uh, public speaking was something I never would have dreamed of. So I hid in the back and I didn't really want to do show and tell, but I found myself coveting these things that my classmates were bringing in. And I thought, I want those things. That would be nice to have. And I didn't necessarily want them to just own them. I wanted them to take home, and on the way home, I fabricated a story, a lie, about how I had won these items, either in PE or a spelling test that I aced, or how I'd earned it some way in school. And I brought it home, and I showed it to my parents, and I said, look what I won. And what did they do? What would any parent do in that situation? They lavished me with praise. They said, that's amazing. You're so smart, or you're so strong, or you're so fast, or I don't remember how it all went down. But I was obsessed with this idea of earning greatness in the eyes of my parents. It was the weirdest thing. And I know that's a terrible story. And I have to say that I come from a home that is very loving and very relational, and so it was no fault of my parents who were sitting here. It wasn't anything they did or didn't do. They loved me and my brother very, very well, and our home was full of love and full of life and full of relationship. And yet I felt when I stepped into this school setting, I needed to steal 
my friends' things and then lie about it to earn greatness from my parents. It's like the most messed up thing. You're all putting your wallets deeper right now, right? <laughs> yeah. I say that to say that this idea of pursuing greatness is something that I think eclipses our own thoughts and makes us do irrational, crazy things that oftentimes will even hurt other people or hurt ourselves or hurt this earth, this creation that we live in. This pursuit of greatness, what is it that runs so deep within us? And so anytime we want to know the truth about something, we as followers of Jesus, we turn to scripture. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read just the first five verses. And just, just listen to this as well. Sometimes we get caught up trying to read along and everybody's got different translations. And so sometimes I think it's good just to listen to the word of God read as well. So feel free to do that. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this, child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the disciples coming to Jesus with a question, who is the greatest? And the funny thing is that this story, the Gospels, they all have kind of a different take on it. One of them says, Matthew, that we just read, they came and they asked Jesus this question. Another one of them says that the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest, and Jesus overheard them and so confronted them. The other one says Jesus just kind of knew what they were thinking and so confronted them. So whatever it is, the disciples are confused right now, and they're questioning, and they're wanting to know, Jesus, in your kingdom... Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the greatest? And the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about for some time now is a kingdom that he is coming to establish here and now on this earth, so something that we would live into here, but also a kingdom that stretches into eternity. That's the kingdom that Jesus continues to talk about and continues to invite everyone into, is this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples are sitting there going, Jesus, who's going to be the best? Is it me? Is it John? Is it Peter? You talk a lot about Peter. I feel like it's Peter, but it could be me. The funny thing is, is this, this question, if, you've read, if, if you just read through the Gospels as a story, right before this, Jesus several times over and over and over again has been telling the disciples that to continue to walk with him, continue to follow the path of Jesus that leads to this kingdom of heaven, they were going to have to suffer die, and then be resurrected to new life in Jesus. In Matthew 16, 21, this is exactly what Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I don't know about you, but if I was following a guy around who was claiming to take me to this kingdom, this better place, and then he said, it's going to be amazing, but to get there, you're going to have to suffer and die, and then be resurrected, whatever that means, <laughs> to new life in me. I think if it were me, I would be asking Jesus, is there somebody else I can go follow right now? Because this doesn't sound good. Suffering and death are not fun. 
and being resurrected to new life, I don't even know what that means. Is there another path, Jesus? Is there like an alternate route to this kingdom that you talk about? Is there any other way to get to this kingdom of heaven other than this path of following you and suffering and dying at the hands of men? I think that's what I would have been asking. And yet the disciples here are asking who's going to be the greatest. And so for me, I find that really, really ironic. And I think as much as I want to say I would be asking, is there someone else I could follow? I think I probably would have been like the disciples and going, yeah, 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 that suffering and death thing, we got that. But who's going to be the best, Jesus? And I think there's a piece of us all that would admit that. There's something about greatness that draws us in. There's something about being on top of the podium, looking down. And we just go, man, that feeling is so good. And I don't think we have to look any farther than our own culture, what we've built today. Right? We look at social media. What's social media? It's a place where we can connect with people, right? Where we can share our stories, where we can catch up with people we haven't seen in a long time. And those are all good things. The other thing I see in social media that's really dangerous is it's a constant one-upping on everybody I know. You just ate at that restaurant? Well, look at this dish that I'm eating at this restaurant. You were just on the beach in Hawaii? I'm on the beach in Fiji. Right? It's just a constant one-upping of photos and pictures and stories of all the best things that we're, that we're experiencing in life, right? That's what we love to share. We don't share the worst things. We share the best things. And not only do we share the best things, but we filter them several times. So they look even better, right? There's no way you can touch this. Politics, right? We already talked about that a little bit. Make America great. The world of politics today, it's much about making oneself great and making one's opponents look not great. Constantly, over and over again. Sports. Sports is a hilarious one. And I have a brother who's just obsessed with sports, loves them which is part of the reason I think I don't love them quite as much. But one of the things I find really interesting is it wasn't enough for us to just have sports teams that we could participate in like fandom, right? Go and cheer and kind of, kind of in a good way, like self-sacrifice, spend the money, spend the time, spend the effort to get to the games, to watch the games, to tailgate, like all the energy that we pour into cheering on these teams. It's kind of a servant role a little bit, right? And they always kind of recognize that. They get up and go, man, without these fans, we couldn't have done this. And it's very much kind of this service to a team. Yet today we've taken that and we flipped it and we've said, nah, don't root for a team. Make your own fantasy team, your own fake team. Bane knows what I'm talking about. Make your own fake team. Make nine of them. Make nine fake teams so that chances are you'll probably end up winning. And then you can be the greatest. You're the best manager. It's funny how we do that. Now, I know fantasy football is fun and everything, so I'm not, not coming down on fantasy football. Have fun with it. But the interesting thing is that greatness earns us something, doesn't it? It earns us admiration. It earns us praise. earns us respect. earns us rank, status, titles, promotions. We can all relate to this, right? That's why we like to be great. Because everybody else looks to us and says, you're the best. You're the greatest. And that feels good. It does. It feels really good. I played sports my whole life. I wrestled, was crazy into wrestling. And one of my favorite things about wrestling was that you get out on a mat with another person and there's no team to stand behind. So if you win, you won. I'm the best. It wasn't a team effort here. I won. (laughs) 
Selfishly, that was one of the reasons I loved wrestling. And they feel good, right? It strikes a chord deep in our soul. It's why, the, why we always want to compete, why we always want to look around at each other within society and kind of size each other up. Who's the best among the group? We do that continually over and over again. And it feels good, but like anything, it fades, right? That feeling of praise, it's only, it's only good as long as people remember that you're the best. Once you fade out of the limelight and somebody else steps in, you find yourself clamoring to get back to that limelight. It's almost like a drug, like an addiction. We'll do anything to get back into that space of being made to be great, being praised, being respected by our peers. We need, it's almost like we need another hit, right? And we'll do just about anything to get it. But the problem is that greatness wears out and it runs dry. And the interesting thing about all those things, praise, respect, admiration, rank, status, they all require relationship. They require relationship. Without anybody else there to stand above, you're just standing by yourself in a room. It doesn't matter if you're at the top of the podium. Nobody's there to take your picture. Nobody's there to remember that you were the best. Nobody's there to praise you or admire you for your greatness. Rank doesn't mean anything if there's nobody else around. Great that you're the general. You don't have any soldiers. You're still alone, right? So greatness, this pursuit of greatness, this desire to be praised and known requires relationship. And I think that is really what we desire. And I think, in fact, it's how we're created to be. We're created to crave relationship. Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, this is one of the books that I read in the last year and absolutely love it, would recommend it to all of you. But he's talking about how we're created and that we're created in the image of a triune God. Talking about Genesis 1.27 where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That we are made in the image of God could and does mean many things. But the fact that the God in whose image we are made is specifically triune, God of love, has repercussions that echo all through Scripture. Made in the image of this God, we are created to delight in harmonious relationship, to love God, to love each other. Thus, Jesus taught that the first and greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That is what we are created for. I love that phrase. We are created to delight in a harmonious relationship. I think what the disciples are actually asking Jesus in this moment is not who's going to be the greatest. I think they're actually asking Jesus, who are you going to love the most? How much are you going to love me, Jesus? How much am I worth to you? Which in light of us being created to be in relationship, to have an opportunity to ask the God of the universe, the Messiah, the King, Jesus, I think I'd ask him the same thing. How much do you love me, Jesus? Now the funny thing here is that Jesus, nine times out of ten, when he's asked a question, he usually responds with a story, right? A parable. He uses language and kind of gives a, a word picture about how, the, how they should think about this. 
In this situation, Jesus doesn't say anything. He just turns and he calls a child into their midst and he sits the child down and he says this. This is what it looks like to be great in my kingdom. In doing this, I think Jesus completely disrupts and disorients everything the disciples are thinking in this moment. They go from being, who's the greatest, who's the greatest, who's the greatest? Jesus drops the child in the midst and says, this, this is the greatest. Like for me, I just, I, I feel like I would have laughed in that moment. It's like, seriously? Seriously, Jesus? A child? But there's some things that I think Jesus is pointing out here that are crucial. Two words specifically I want to call out. When Jesus calls the child in their midst, he says that to even enter into this kingdom of heaven, they must turn and become like a child. Enter. So Jesus quickly reorients their understanding of what it means to be in this kingdom or how to even get into this kingdom. He's saying, guys, we're not talking about who's the greatest. The kingdom of heaven is not about rank. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you've done or, or earned or think you've earned. The kingdom of heaven is about who's in. That's the question that we need to be asking here, guys. Not who's the greatest, but who is going to be in this kingdom. This is it. Stop quarreling about who's the greatest and start talking about how do we even get into this thing. The second way that he disrupts or disorients their understanding of this kingdom is that he says, you speaking to the disciples, must turn. You must change. You must transform. And you must become like a child. So he's literally telling the disciples in that moment, the way you're acting, the way you're thinking, the way you're speaking, the way you are trying to work towards this kingdom of heaven, you need to turn from that. You got it all wrong. The kingdom of heaven is about becoming like a child. This isn't the first time that Jesus has done this to somebody. Anybody remember the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee? He came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how do I get into this kingdom of heaven that you're talking about? And Jesus says, what? You must be born again. You must be born again in order to enter this kingdom of heaven that I'm talking about. And Nicodemus, you know, oftentimes I, I read scripture and it, there's so much humor in it in a lot of ways and so much just realness in it. Like if I was standing there and I asked Jesus, how do I get into this kingdom? And he says, you must be born again. Just that. Like, you must be born again. What does that mean? It means you must be birthed into this world again. And Nicodemus' reaction, I think, is so beautiful because he just kind of goes like, what? You want me to crawl back into my mother's womb? I I'm a full-grown man. I can't do that. Jesus, what you're asking here, this is impossible. So you're saying that to enter your kingdom is impossible. I think oftentimes Jesus meets us in these places of impossibility, these crisis moments where all of a sudden we go like, whoa, apparently I've got it all wrong. I need to reorient my understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. Now, children are an interesting thing because I think a lot of us, myself included, when I first turned to this passage and read through it, immediately I jumped to, well, he must be talking about like the character of, the chil of a children, of a child, right? 
Things like innocence, things like trust, things like they just have a joy about life. They're constantly learning, right? Lindsay and I have been blessed with a one-year-old daughter, Emma, and she can't talk yet, but she's always just like pointing to things and grabbing things and looking at things and examining things and just learning constantly. You can see her learning. She just learned how to walk, and it was just amazing. She went from like falling, standing, falling, standing, falling, standing, just walking. I just learned it. I didn't teach her anything. She just learned it. Children are great learners. Disciple means learner. So is Jesus talking here about the character of a child? I don't think so because I think about my own story as a child. And I stole and I lied. And I hurt all my friends. So children, yes, are innocent. And children, yes, are incredible learners. And they can soak up information like crazy. But I think very quickly we realize that no, children too fall short of what it takes to be in this kingdom. And so I don't think he's talking about character here. I think Jesus is talking about two things with children. I think he's talking about the fact that children are vulnerable. And what I mean by that is children are fully known. They can't hide anything. They try to, right? For those of you who have kids that are old enough to kind of do things and then try to explain their way out of it, you know that your kids come to you with something, right, like a broken vase on the floor, and they come and say, Dad, the the vase broke. I don't know how it happened. And you're like, well, I know how it happened. You broke the vase. So now we just need to have a conversation and get to the point where you realize that I already know that you broke the vase, and I love you, and I'm going to forgive that you broke the vase, but I need you to get to admit that you broke the vase. We all know that. We all run into the kids, and we've seen them do those things. I look forward to today that Emma does that, but not quite yet. But the reality for Emma, my daughter, is that I see everything she does. She's just cruising around the house, doing all these little things, and completely oblivious. Completely oblivious. Runs into things, falls down things, falls down the stairs. The dogs are just licking her all over the place, in and out of the mouth. She's oblivious to the world around her. And it's Lindsay and I's job as parents to constantly be observing everything that Emma is experiencing so that we can love her through all of that, right? So that we can protect her, so that we can make sure she doesn't hit her head on the coffee table or fall down a stair. But the fact is, Emma is completely vulnerable in our home. Without our love and care and our watch, she's helpless. She's vulnerable. I think that's one of the things Jesus is pointing out here is that in order to enter my kingdom, you have to be willing to be vulnerable to be fully known, to lay bare everything in you. The other thing I think Jesus is talking about here is that children are dependent. Are they not? How do we enter this world? Naked. We come into this world naked, covered in all kinds of grossness. And what else? Hungry. Naked and hungry. Such a beautiful picture of vulnerable and dependent. Without the love and care of Lindsay and I, Emma would not have made it. She would not have made it. I think this is what Jesus is asking. He's saying, I want you to be naked and I want you to be hungry. I want you to be vulnerable and I want you to be dependent. Now, how does this confront our culture? Well, I think it confronts it in a lot of ways. We live in the land of opportunity, right? The American dream, 
Some of the phrases that we love to use, right? Anyone can be a self-made person, right? Self-made man, self-made woman, we've all heard that. You can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We either know people that we, that we think of in that light or we're taught that in history. Man, this was a guy that just pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. This woman, she had nothing. Self-made woman. Completely self-sufficient. Anything you want in this country can be yours if you're just willing to work hard enough for it, if you're willing to earn it. The sad thing is I think this idea of self-sufficiency, this idea of being self-made, it's a lie. It's a lie that we buy into a lot because the question you have to ask yourself very quickly with self-sufficiency, is it even possible? Are any of us truly self-sufficient? If you know me, you know that I can't go very long without talking about food. So here's the food portion, okay? Did anybody eat breakfast this morning? Yeah? Some of us did? I had some killer breakfast. That was a setup, guys. Pete made this really nice casserole. And there was eggs, and there was bacon, and there's potatoes, right? We drink coffee, usually. Did we grow any of that? Did we plant the seeds that grew the wheat that was then crushed and ground to make the Cheerios? Do we milk the cow? Do we raise the cow? I don't think we have to look any further than the last meal that we ate to realize that we as a people are dependent. We're designed that way. Even if you go live off the grid and you want to build this little place that is all about self-sufficiency, at the end of the day, you're reliant on the earth. We're reliant on things that grow out of the earth. We're reliant on things that die and go back into the earth. We're reliant in all facets of life, and yet we continually build these bubbles around us to try to say, no, no, I'm self-made, I'm self-sufficient. Look at my greatness, look, I got it all together. And the sad thing is, is we're simply acting, we're simply trying to live in a lie that will essentially let us down. And so for me, the question I have to ask very quickly is, do we as a people want to live a lie? Or do we want to live honestly and truthfully? I know for me, I want to live honestly and truthfully. It's scary, but that's where I want to be. And so very quickly we go, who do we look to if we're going to look at what it means to live honestly and truthfully in this world? And as followers of Jesus, the beautiful thing is we have a template. We have an example, and that would be the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus, who we know to be God, creator of the universe, gave up self-sufficiency. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient, always has been, always will be. God is the only self-sufficient being. And yet gave that up, entered into our reality, our world, as a baby. From the get-go, Jesus shows us what it looks like to live fully dependent relying on Mary and Joseph and their community for care, to be raised, to feed him, to clothe him, to make sure he gets to bed at night, to wipe him, all those things that babies need. Jesus needed that. He was born a child. But further than that, Jesus lived that way his whole life, right? Didn't drive a car, didn't hold down a job, didn't have a home, didn't even have a set community. The guy just traveled around. Didn't plant gardens, didn't raise animals, didn't make his own clothes. 
Jesus was completely and wholly reliant on the people around him. And as we read in Scripture, completely and wholly reliant on being perfectly filled with the Spirit and in perfect union with the Father. Jesus shows, it what, shows us what it looks like to live in this world completely and wholly dependent and vulnerable. Everywhere he went, he was always saying, hey, can we eat at your house? Right? You want to have me over? You want to talk? Sweet. I need to eat. And my disciples need to eat. So can you have us over to dinner? That was Jesus. He was the guy that always invited himself over. He was the guy that's always crashing on your couch. He was wholly and completely dependent and vulnerable. This rails against our culture, doesn't it? Because our culture values independence. That's what it means to grow up and be mature and to make it in this world, right? At least in America, this is what we value. What does it mean to be, to be mature in this country? It means, well, you've moved out of your parents' house, you have your own job, you have your own car, you have your own paychecks, you have your own, your own, your own, you're making it, right? You're independent. You don't need anybody else's help. That's what it means to make it in this, in this country. Completely separate from your community. Our tendency is that we want to earn what we have, right? We want to be able to say, look, look at all the work I did. Look at all the sacrifices I did. That's why I have what I have today. That's why I am self-sufficient. When in actuality, we've been helped along the whole way by somebody or something so the picture that Jesus is giving us here that rails against our culture and rails against, I think, ourselves in a lot of ways is that in order to enter this kingdom, you must become a child. And as Nicodemus pointed out, the only way to become a child again is to die and then to be born again. Right? How else do you become like a child? Even in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you're just taking adults and shrinking them down to small people. They're still small adults, right? They're not children. So Jesus is giving this picture yet again of to beget new life, eternal life, you must be willing to die, allow yourself to die, and to be resurrected into new life with Christ. That's the resurrection, that's the new life, that's the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about here. Anybody know how we do that? That's the part where it starts to get really messy, right? Because that's tricky. How do I die to self? How do I be willing to be vulnerable? How do I be willing to be dependent? How do I even learn to do those things? How do we learn to need Jesus? This is the question. I think this is the beautiful picture that Jesus gives us in gifting himself, his spirit, and this, the church. This becomes our practice arena for learning what it means to be vulnerable and dependent. Jesus says that the church is his body. The church is the representation of Jesus Christ to this world. So we must reflect Jesus, which means we must reflect vulnerability and dependency. And I think Jesus is saying that with the church and the instruction we're given, there is no better place to practice this, to learn this, to learn to be fluent in this, than amongst this group, this people, that would say, yes, we want to follow Jesus. We want to enter this kingdom. We have to teach each other to live as kingdom citizens. We do this through the power of the Spirit 
and through looking at the template that Jesus gives us of what it means to live perfectly in this world. First, we have to adopt vulnerability as a child is vulnerable, which means what? When somebody asks, how are you doing? Speak truthfully. I'm not doing very well. That's really hard because we do that and you're just kind of like handing somebody this massive burden. Here you go. This is how I'm doing. And then you kind of just step back and you go, okay, now what? What are you going to do with that? But this is what happens, doesn't it? These broken places in our lives finally peek out through the cracks of this facade that we're acting and we have nothing else to do but then just to kind of vomit it on each other and then go, okay, now how are we going to handle that? Sadly, my wife's grandmother passed away last week while we were up at summer camp where we're supposed to just be having fun and playing and laughing and enjoying the creation and instead we're hunkered down in the trees essentially hiding in a lot of ways because it's like, I, what, what do we do with this? Death. We can't make sense of death. Pain, suffering, heartache. The beautiful thing was that the church, which is where we were with, people came. And people said, here, give me some of that. Let me carry that for you. Our air mattress went flat the first night. Second night, a really good friend came and said, here, sleep on my air mattress. I'll sleep on the ground. You sleep on the air mattress. If we hadn't been willing to be vulnerable in that moment and say, we're hurting right now, please love us, that doesn't happen. You don't get an air mattress. <laughs> so when somebody asks you, how's life? Speak truthfully to each other. This is where we practice this. This is where the grace of Christ abounds. What better place to practice this than here? As a group of people that said, yes, we're willing to love one another. So if it's good, tell us how good it is. If it's bad, tell us how bad it is. Be willing to speak truthfully about our brokenness. Second, we have to be willing to admit need. You can't depend on what you don't need, right? As a child admits need. Again, Emma can't talk, but she just runs around, and when she needs something, she cries. And that's her saying, I need, and it's so beautiful. It's so, it makes it so easy, right? Not that necessarily parenting is easy, but you know when she's crying, she needs something. And we as her parents can be there to extend love and grace and to pour out ourselves into her to meet that need. We as the church need to do the same thing. What do you need? What do I need? It's one of those questions that I think we all run around fearing. Because if I were to ask each one of us here this morning, on the spot, what do you need? How many would be able to say, this is what I need right now. I need an air mattress. How many of us know ourselves that well? How many of us are willing to sit in our brokenness and be able to understand what we actually need so that we can voice it when it, when it comes about? How many of us would be willing to answer what we actually need? That's the really scary one. Maybe I know what I need, but I don't, I don't want to ask it of you. I don't want to be a burden. So I'll just hold this and carry this. But I can't need, can't need from you. When asked, what do you need? 
speak truthfully. We have to be willing to trust each other with our needs. There's a lot of talk, especially in the church, and I think especially now about this idea of reverting back to the early church, right? Where everybody took all their possessions, they put it together and divided it as everyone had what? As everyone had need. If you don't know what people need, then what's the point of dividing or gathering anything? You just put it all in a room and then we all stand around and go, I don't need any of that. I think that's often what we do. We have to be willing to speak truthfully about what we need. Finally, we have to desire grace as a child desires grace. Emma doesn't know it, but she desires grace constantly. Constantly. She doesn't deserve anything that Lindsay and I do for her. But we do it continually because we love her, because she's our daughter. And we do it joyfully because we want to. When we choose to be vulnerable with each other, and when we choose to voice our needs to one another, we can't help but desire grace from one another. That's that space of going, here's my reality, here's what I need from you, and that's where grace comes in, and it covers that. We haven't earned it, we don't deserve it, but we ask for it anyway because it's what is needed. We have to be willing to ask each other for grace. Real quick, we'll turn one more passage of scripture, Ephesians chapter four, verse 25. And I love this passage because I think it sums up everything we're talking about here. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I've often read that passage as one of those like, I need to speak truth to my neighbor about how they're living and help correct that a little bit. Right? That's where we go. I've got it together, but let me speak truth to you about how you need to fix a few things in your life. That's where we go very quickly, right? That tendency to want to judge. I think think what we're talking about here is having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. I think it's saying stop lying about your reality. Stop saying it's all good. Stop saying you've got it all together. Speak truth to one another. Be willing to trust one another. This is difficult with people, isn't it? Because we've all been hurt. We've all bared our souls before somebody only to be let down, only to not see grace abound in those moments. Some more than others, but I think we've all experienced that. And so it makes it really, really hard to trust each other. But I think this is why Jesus asks us, I would say commands us, to forgive one another. Forgiveness is the extension of grace. And if we are to be the body of Christ in the world, then we have to continually be extending grace because that's what we see in Jesus. A man who extended grace in everything he did. How do we learn to forgive one another? How do we learn to extend grace to one another? Again, we look to Jesus, who says, forgive as I forgave you. So as much as Jesus has forgiven each one of us, that's how much we need to be willing to forgive one another. That's how much grace we need to be willing to extend to one another. 
John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is saying this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say a new suggestion, a new idea, a new really creative solution to all of life's problems. Jesus says, this is a new commandment I give to you. And as followers of Jesus, we are to take the commandments of Jesus seriously. Are we not? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is how people will know that you are my disciples. To live this way, to live continually forgiving and extending grace to one another and continually laying bare ourselves before one another and being dependent requires much more than we have to give. And this is the beauty is that Jesus isn't saying, go and do this on your own. He's saying, go and do this and I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've empowered you with the same spirit that carried me. Jesus gave up some of what he had as part of the divine to come to earth and become human. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he was completely and fully filled with the spirit. We have to live likewise. I think oftentimes we talk about being filled with the spirit so that we can do great things. And I do think that is true. I think a great thing can be forgiving someone. To be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus, this is what the disciples ask. What does it mean to be the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? Jesus brings a child, places it in front of them, and says this. This is what it means to be the greatest in the kingdom. I need you to be vulnerable. I need you to be dependent. I need you to speak truth with one another. To be the greatest in the kingdom of America is to be independent, self-sufficient. To be the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus is to be the most dependent on Jesus. This is what we need to learn. Father, we have much to learn. We live in a culture that tells us continually over and over again, at every facet and every turn, it seems, that in order to be great in America, we have to be independent. We have to be self-sufficient. We have to be, we have to be able to make it on our own. And yet, Father, you disrupt this reality in your son by coming, by being the example for us of what it looks like to give up self, to die to self, to be willing to be a child, vulnerable and dependent, and to live a completely and vulnerable, dependent life. Father, may we as the church be an accurate reflection of your son, Jesus. May we embody Christ. May we forgive one another. May we extend grace to one another. May we live as children, vulnerable and dependent in this world. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.